And so I, it's still just kind of hanging on, trying to figure out how to put it in and not get blown over the back of this mountain safely. And an eagle came out of a tree and just skied out, just poof. And I went to where he was or had just been and got a ripper thermal. You know, it was like a 12 meter climb. Lost one side of my wing, but that didn't matter because the, the thermal was so strong. And I, I went to 16,000 feet in what felt like seconds. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle. Always appreciate your help here on the podcast. And thank you for joining us for another great guest and more adventures. Today, we will be getting a different view of the skies. I thought it would be fun to hear what it's like soaring in a thermal in a paraglider and who better to explain how it works and share his soaring journey with us than gavin mcclurg now gavin is a paraglider pilot author adventure public speaker and host of the podcast cloud-based mayhem he has also flown in alaska being the first person to traverse the full length of the alaska range by foot and paraglider he became the first american to complete the toughest adventure race on earth the x alps I'll put some links in the show notes for a couple of YouTube videos of that. Absolutely mind-blowing what you have to do to even be able to compete in that event. Gavin shares a lot of those stories with us. Later on this episode, Sergio is back with a brand new segment called Cloud Flying. So let's strap on the harness and join Gavin and do some paragliding. Hello, Gavin. Welcome to Soaring the Sky. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Chuck. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. So paragliding, you know... It's not something we usually do. You know, we're all about sailplanes. But I was like, you know, I I really got to talk to some of these paraglider guys. And I've been watching you the past couple of years and your podcast. And, and I thought it'd be super interesting for us glider pilots to, just to get another perspective. Yeah, I I, uh, I need to do the same. I had a guy, Kevin Brooker, on the show a while back. It was one of my most popular shows. He's a sailplane pilot back east, north of you. And we were talking a lot about Wave and the Perland project and just some of the things going on in the sailplane world. I need to get a lot more on because my show does definitely do more paragliding than anything else, but it's really a free flight show. So I, I need to, uh, you know, and, and soaring and sailplanes are, you know, the original beast and I, I uh, and they're amazing. And I always feel like, God, there's so much that we could learn from from sailplane pilots. So yeah, excited to have this talk with you. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way about you guys. So much to learn. So gliders have a cockpit with the usual controls, and our our listeners are familiar with that. What various lines are you guys tugging on, and what function do they have for what situation? Yeah, we we really only have two methods of controlling speed, and that's our brakes. So our hands are through uh, our brake lines, which on the right hand goes to the right cascade of brake lines, which is at the tailing edge of the of the wing. So just imagine an airplane with flaps down uh, and and the left hand goes to the left side. And so that's really how we can slow the wing down. Uh, and then we control pitch and roll and yaw and everything with, our, with weight shift. And we also have in our, our legs can activate a speed bar, which depending on the harness, you know, for cross-country flying, we're typically in uh, kind of a cocoon uh, and... 
we can step, typically a step has one or two steps in it, I'm sorry, two or three steps in it. And you can speed the wing up, you know, increase the angle of attack by adding more speed bar. So those are really the only two things we can do in terms of, you know, slowing, it, slowing her down or speeding her up. So you're, if you're increasing your angle of attack, of course, it's just like you guys putting the nose down, you're, you're speeding up, but your glide ratio is going down. Right. So our producer, Mitch, in Southern California there, he's, he was wondering why they see parapilots flying in the San Gabriels, but usually only during the very peak strong months of August and September, and always with days of some development or cumulus clouds, never really on blue days. He was always curious about that, even on blue days with like the 10 knot thermals topping out at maybe 10 to 12,000 feet. He said they never really see paragliders. Yeah, I, I I read your question, you know, yesterday, and so the you know the the peak season out there really is quite a bit before then, and so it might just be a matter of when you guys are flying versus I would think it'd be the same, but you know the the really the really good season, especially at Marshall, is is earlier. So most of the people start wandering out there. I mean, there's a there's a pretty good year round scene in Marshall uh, for hang gliding and paragliding, but the, you know, the a lot of my friends that are really keen and they travel year round to fly will will get out to Marshall in kind of uh, April May, and and so they're they're earlier but certainly we don't shy away at all from blue days so that was surprising to me to hear that um they're not seeing paragliders on blue days my guess is maybe that we have to remember that we don't like wind um and you guys can handle a lot more wind than we do so what might be a you know quote unquote light wind day for the sailplane might just be too strong for us you know in the mountain the we often fly in the Mojave. We we launch off the east side, um, on the backside of Marshall and stuff, and we'll fly out in the Mojave and you know and and get really tall, as I know that sailplanes do as well. But we'll uh, you know we can handle more wind in those kind of places because you don't have the rotor. You know you can you can escape out into the desert and you don't have all the terrain. But when there's terrain, you know anything much over 15k an hour starts to get pretty rowdy for us. You know we will fly certainly in more. Of the, in more than that, um, you know, up to maybe 30 K an hour in the mountains, but then it starts to get pretty dicey. So my guess is, you know, we're out there and maybe the sailplanes just aren't seeing them. They're taking different routes or different times, but, you know, I know August, September starts to get really stable in that part of the world. And that's when a lot of the paragliders are out in the desert, you know, chasing higher bases and uh, bigger distance. Yeah, I mean, you're super light. I can't imagine. I've, I've flown some of the pretty light gliders, and I get in some turbulence. I'm getting bounced around. I, can't, I just can't imagine you guys getting tossed around in something so light. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, I, I can't compare it, of course, because I've never flown a sailplane. A, a lot of paragliders do fly, fly sailplanes, and so they'd be better to ask when it comes to that. But I would imagine we're taking a little bit more of a beating than you guys do. <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just a straight up cruise glide what kind of glide slope is typical in a player paraglider i mean i know a sailplane pilots were used to 30 to one to up to 50 to one 
Yeah, I mean, we our our baseline's about ten to one. You know, it used to be quite a bit worse than that. You know, certainly our high end, what we call hot gliders, competition gliders, are up there in the kind of eleven and a half. Uh, you know, pushing into twelve to one. But in terms of what we think of, you know, when we're looking at our polars, we're thinking ten to one's a pretty good scenario if you know all things all things equal you know depend we we are very affected by the wind so obviously a little bit of headwind that goes way down uh, a little bit of tailwind it goes way up so these days the competition gliders the two liners you know there was a huge step forward in glider technology when when ozone invented the two liner we call it the shark nose so instead of the top surface and the bottom surface just being completely open in front these days the the top surface bends all the way around the intake i guess you call it is is very narrow and it's on the bottom surface of the glider and so uh, that was just a huge step forward and in terms of reducing drag with the two-liner technology, but also just increasing speed and and glide, and so uh, and therefore glide, and so we, you know, the top end competition gliders, which are of course more dangerous to fly because uh, they're just much much higher aspect. You know, think of a, just a really high aspect sailplane where you're starting to get to the sixty to one. They're touching the kind of mid-range hang gliders, you know, so that's they're well over even, I, I believe, even 12 to 1. So, you know, still remarkably slow and a very poor glide compared to you guys. But pretty exciting for us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was watching uh, some of the videos there, and it sometimes it looks like you guys are just, like, hovering. It's <laughs> it's wild, but... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when we're... You know, when we're ridge soaring or, you know, at a, at an ocean site and just ridge soaring, if there's, you know, if there's 20, 30 K an hour wind, you're basically parked, you know, you're just, just chilling yeah, out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, our, our trim speed on, on a high end glider, you know, so no speed bar, just trim is going to be in the kind of mid forties K an hour. And on those hot end gliders, uh, which are pretty exciting to fly and a lot of fun. And, you know, when you're on. When you're on full speed, you're up around 70 k an hour. So there's a huge difference between oh, trim wow. and and uh, and full speed. But yeah, it's still again, it's just totally different ball game than a sailplane. You had kind of mentioned this actually to kind of answer the question, but just soaring around Instagram, I rarely see any cross pollination between sailplane pilots and para pilots. And you said you do know some other pilots that also fly gliders, but is is that common in a lot of paraglider pilots? To, or do a lot of them do fly gliders, or what have you seen? I wouldn't say a lot. Um, you know, I, I thought about this. I, I know less than a handful who do personally. Uh, there's a there's one of my ex Alps buddies, Nick Nanins from New Zealand, has just recently gotten into soaring, and there's certainly more in Europe. We have a very famous hang glider pilot who has the world record that he broke in 2012, a guy named Dustin Martin who lives down in Arizona, and he got a start in sailplanes. I don't think he flies them much anymore. Okay. So there certainly is. Um, you know, I think it's, when it comes down to it, what I've heard uh, is that it's quite a bit different sensation, and it's quite a bit different type of flying i mean the principle is exactly the same of course but it's a much different texture it's a much 
different aesthetic in a sense because we're you know we don't have a cockpit we don't have anything protecting us there's a lot more sound and like i said a lot more rowdiness and so my guess i don't have any statistics behind this but my guess is you know a lot of paraglider pilots is they start aging out they're probably getting more into soaring or it becomes a more attractive thing because um you know paragliding is can tend to be pretty hard on us uh landing and you know if you when you start getting more brittle in older age then you know i think flying a sailplane is definitely going to be safer yeah definitely i mean you guys are athletes i mean that's that's kind of how i look at it you pretty much have to be it's becoming more that way you know when i first got into the sport kind of in the early 2000s I certainly didn't hear that word being thrown around very much. And you saw a lot of people who were not very fit in the sport um, because you don't have to be. You certainly don't have to be. You can drive up to launch and, you know, the actual art of flying doesn't require a ton of, you know, physical energy. It requires, like you guys, a ton of brain energy. You're, you're burning a lot of calories, Uh and and there's of course you know on rowdy days there's a lot of fear and there's 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 just a lot going on so you are burning a lot of calories but it doesn't the flying aspect doesn't necessarily require a really high level of fitness but in the last 15 years with the you know the increase um, attention and excitement about hike and fly and all the hike and fly races that are happening around the world, you know, that's become a big part of our sport. There's been a huge uh, increase in bivy flying. So that's vol biv is the French term. They invented it like they invent all the cool things where you're hiking and flying and camping. And so, you know, you can cover huge expanses and big mountain ranges uh, if you have the time to do it and the supplies. And so, you know, quite a few years back, I, I crossed the Alaskan range. A couple of years before that, I crossed the Canadian Rockies down to the U.S. border. You know, these were big. The Alaskan one was 37 days. Oh, wow. um, and so you're, there's there's a huge interest in that. When I first got into Volbiv, yeah, there was a handful of people doing it. And now it's become really popular. And just by nature, you've got to be fit to do that because you're carrying not only your gear, but your food and your tent and you know all the stuff you need to survive for multiple days so and then there's been a big um push for you know to go big you know to send big lines and to fly big distances that require 9 10 11 hours in the sky you've just got to be fit you've got to be well rested and physical fitness does play a huge factor in success there so it's really turned quite a bit since I've gotten into it that, you know, these days when you show up at a launch, I would agree with you. Uh, most pilots are pretty fit. Maybe athletes pushing it too far. Certainly many of them are, but I think people are paying attention to to staying fit just to keep it more safe. Because the other thing is just durability. You know, when you're, when you're fit and uh, spending some time in the gym, that could mean the difference between a hard landing and going to the hospital and a hard landing and just walking away. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro sailplane simulator cockpit would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. 
if you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. I think we've all seen a lot of YouTube and paragliding pilots having some entanglement with maybe a large flying creature, <laughs> but um, I'm sure those, you know, most of the time I'm sure there are exceptions, but for the most part, do the big birds play nice with you guys or do they get freaked out and bothered by your presence? I think for sailplane pilots tucked nicely inside our cockpits, it's mostly not a big thing that we worry about. Yeah. Same. Um, you know, birds are definitely, you know, most of the time they're helping us out. You know, just like you guys, you're looking for birds in a climb. And, you know, if they're out climbing you, you got to go to them. And so we we see birds as a huge advantage. You know, we, we want to see birds. And, you know, that helps us cover distance typically. And, uh, you know, they're always taking the better line. So, and... I've heard of almost no incidents. You know, there there was a really famous one that's all over YouTube uh, out in Beer, India, which is a really popular place to, to paraglide and has become really popular in the last decade. Um, you know, they have big vultures out there. And, you know, it was just the, I think the lines are pretty hard for a big bird to see, especially from a distance. And this was one of those just super rare cases where, you know, the pilot was flying one direction and the vulture was coming at him, directly at him from the other direction. And as you know, we're not very easy to see when we're head on. That's why I always we always worry about airplanes. And yeah. so uh, the bird just flew right into the pilot's lines and, and got totally tangled up and the pilot had to throw his reserve and they both came down together and both the pilot and the bird were totally okay. And the, the video is hysterical, but uh, I think it was wow. a Russian pilot, but pretty rare. There's a, a buddy of mine who was uh, used to be a pilot down in Australia on the, uh, on the Perth side, on the West side, there's a, I think it's an eagle that is very territorial and especially if they've got chicks and uh, this is a place where it's a very popular soaring site and those pilots often get hit by the eagles and when I mean get hit the eagles come down on top of the canopy and just attack it and put big holes in their gliders as far as I know no one's ever oh wow you can fly a paraglider with a lot of problems you know it can have blown out lines it could have big holes um and it's not as good but it's totally it's still fine I've had lots of you know when we when we launch our gliders in rocky terrain or with a lot of you know a lot of snags and that kind of thing um rather than being on a you know quote-unquote tailored launch or you know one that's been like at marshall which you're not going to get tangled on anything you know when you're doing a lot of hike and fly and a lot of bivy you're you're often getting to launches that are not ideal and you'll pop a line or something and it's no big deal you totally fly your glider with missing lines but um or holes it's it's not a big deal until they get really big so i've never heard of that actually taking a glider out of the sky i'm sure there you know i'm sure there's a case but for the most part birds are our friends that kind of brings me to safety, if we can talk about that for a bit. I think for most glider pilots, they perceive that paragliding is on the risk scale, probably higher risks, sports and sailplanes. I'm sure there are some stats out there for fatalities or injuries per thousand hours or whatever. But all that aside, what is it that gets parapilots in trouble? I mean, for us glider pilots, it's getting slow in a landing pattern or thermaling or you know, flying too close to terrain and stalling. 
What are the real gotcha things in the para world? Probably very similar. I'm sure the statistics are worse in paragliding than sailplanes. That might, maybe that's just numbers. Uh, I don't know how many sailplane pilots there are in the world. Do you know? Do you have a number? I don't have a number right offhand for you. I can't imagine it's as many. Um, you know, you just, you don't see, I mean, I fly a lot in the Alps. I fly with a lot of sailplanes, but, you know, on a, on a big day, I'll see, you know, 10 sailplanes and 150 paragliders and a few hang gliders, you know, so that, I think that's probably pretty representative. Uh, you know, if we just expand that out to the world, I would imagine that's pretty close. Um, so it might just be, it might just be numbers, but I would hazard that the statistics are quite a bit worse in, in paragliding. Um, and I would hazard that the, the reasons are very similar. Um, launching and landing is what gets people. Uh, it's very rare that it's something that happens in the sky, at least when there's enough terrain to deal with a problem. But like you said, when you're, when you're shallow on the terrain, when you're tight on the terrain, um, if something happens, you know, you put yourself in the wrong spot or, you know, get hit by a dust devil or, you know, your leaf line. We do a lot of leaf flying, as I know you do as well. But, um, you know, of course, leaf flying just puts you in pockets of rotor. And if you mismanage a situation or something that, you know, hits you that you, you just weren't anticipating and you're low on the terrain, you know, you, you do have very little time to react or do something about it. So, you know, but mo most of the accidents, and I don't have statistics, but there's, it's going to be way up there in terms of the percentage are, you know, blown landings and blown launches. So launches, typically those are getting plucked, you know, so in conditions that are a little bit strong for that pilot's ability and they try to launch and it's just too windy or too cross. Uh, and then landing is exactly what you said is speed. Yeah. Um, you know, not having enough speed of the glider, uh, getting too deep in the brakes and stalling or stalling the whole glider or spinning it, which is stalling one side of the glider, uh, low to the terrain and coming in hard. So a lot of that ends up being from object fixation, just like you guys learn about and, or just putting it into a tight spot and not nailing it. And then usually uh, panicking and, you know, turning downwind or instead of crashing into a tree, you know, trying to, trying to put it in over uh, a bit of dirt and whereas the tree would have been a much safer choice, you know, and, uh, and, and then again, spinning the glider or something. So, you know, our sport sees a lot of ankles and legs and of course, spinal injuries. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, aviation, you don't want to hit the ground. No. <laughs> <laughs> or you want to hit the ground softly. Yeah. As far as thermaling, now, do you guys do the same as gliders as far as turning into the thermals at steep banks? Or, or is it more shear line and convergence or ridge? No, it's I, I it's the same. Uh, I can't imagine, even though that I'm not a sailplate pilot, it's the exact same thing. You know, if it's a strong thermal, we're banking harder. If it's a light thermal, we're, we're trying to keep the glider right. as flat as we possibly can. Um, you know, we... Of course, we're always searching for convergence because we're not as fast as you guys and our glide is not nearly as good. So, you know, if we can get a convergence line, we'll try to take advantage of that the best we can. The, the 
distance record was broken this year down in Texas uh, on a paraglider. Um, a guy went 608 kilometers, I think, in a straight line from South Texas to North Texas up over the hill country. And that oh, was wow. possible because of, nice. you know, an incredible convergence line between the dry line that comes over from New Mexico and a system that was out in the Gulf and the two converged. And, uh, you know, he saw it coming and flew an incredible convergence line where he didn't need to turn, especially near the end of the flight, very much at all. So, you know, we'll seek out convergence lines. We have software that was actually developed by the sailplane pilot down in Australia, um, and I'm sure most of your pilots use um, that, you know, that can help pick out convergence lines. And so we're, we're very aware of those. But when it comes to thermaling, you know, the main difference is we turn a lot tighter than you guys do uh, just because we can. It's this exact same. We're trying to map the core and get into it as fast as we possibly can and stay in the core and stay in the best part of the air as long as we can. And But when I fly with sailplanes, there's a big race over in Gerlitzen every year in Austria, and I'm often in the sky at the same time and watching those guys. And it's the, the principle is exactly the same. You just you guys go 1,500K, and we go 200 <laughs> right. So, yeah. When you guys are flying in heavily trafficked area with sailplanes, is it common to tune into local glider port frequencies and talk to the glider pilots? Unfortunately, it's very uncommon. This is a great question. I'm glad you asked this. My One of my ex-out supporters, a guy named Revis Seffen Gray, and he actually is one of the ones that flies a lot out in Marshall. And he's he flies with an airband radio, so he's talking to you guys all the time, and he's talking to cockpits and airplanes, and he's talking to the airports. But that's you know our our radios, our typical radios, um, are not on those frequencies. We're not on those bands, and so we're we have club frequencies and uh, you know air to air frequencies that paragliders use and hang gliders use, but you guys don't and you know it's it's basically because most of us don't have ham licenses and we're not licensed to operate on those frequencies and so it's a big missing part of our sport but pilots who do fly in heavily trafficked areas with a lot of airspace like in germany um they will you know i would i would imagine that your sailplane guys in germany and the parent, you know, when they listen to this, they're like, yeah, we, of course we do that. But here in the States, um, you know, FLARM isn't really a big deal yet. And neither are our flying with airband radios. For us, weight is a big deal. And so we don't like to carry things that we don't need to carry. And because most of the time, well, a lot of the time we're hiking the launch. And so adding another brick, adding another radio, it just hasn't sunk in, but it should, uh, it would... But when you're flying in a place like Marshall where there's a lot of air traffic, you know, I think it's an, it's an absolute necessity and all of us should be. It just it hasn't taken hold. Well, speaking of gliders and parapilots in the same airspace, how does it feel to be under your canopy where a sailplane is close by and maybe sees you, maybe he doesn't, maybe he's trying to take a picture of you? Have you had this happen? A lot. And it's awesome. I've never had any problem with sailplane pilots. There have been a couple casualties with mid-airs, uh, with, with paragliders and, and sailplanes in the Alps. I've heard a couple horrific stories. So, of course, you know, you guys are flying really fast and there is the chance, I think especially cloud flying, that a mid-air could happen and it would be 
catastrophic. And the ones that I've heard about have been catastrophic for both. Um, so, you know, it's certainly something that we're thinking about, but I don't know of any paraglider that doesn't love seeing sailplanes. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome. And in my experience, you guys are looking out really well. You've got a big, huge cockpit, you know, you've got a very good view of the sky. Um, you know, I guess where I'd be a little nervous is if I was just directly under, because uh, you can't see us so well then. But the thing there is you're, you're leaving before we have to worry about it. You're going on to the next thermal. So, and then, like I said, typically we're inside of you. You're always circling around us. If we're in the core that, you know, a sailplane just can't bank that hard. It can't fly in the same core that we're flying in. So, Typically, we're out climbing sailplanes um, yeah. unless it's just a really big thermal. And so we're usually out climbing them, and it's a pretty brief, hey, how's it going? And, you know, we wave, you guys wave. It's awesome. And and you're gone. You know, you're you're, on, you're off doing the next thing. Right. So <laughs> I, I love seeing sailplanes. I wish we saw more of them here in the States. You know, I live in central Idaho where... There's a there's a pretty good uh, event, a sailplane event that happens every year. I don't even know what you call a sailplane event, but it's over in the over in the Big Lost, and you know, in a, in a day they'll they'll get towed up and fly to the Canadian border and back. You know, it's just awesome. The the terrain you guys can cover in a single day is amazing. Yeah. So um, it's definitely on my bucket list. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Well, speaking of bucket list, paragliding is on my bucket list. So how do you get started in paraglider? What's the usual path between someone that has a dream and then they graduate to a solo flight? Yeah, from what I understand, I don't fly airplanes, um, but I, I have a lot of friends that do. And some, you know, people that are into aviation, uh, you know, often also end up flying airplanes that get into paragliding. So um, I think it's pretty similar. You know, you would go to a school. And you would learn first how to ground handle. And there, there are great schools all over the world. And, you know, typically the, the syllabus is theory. Uh, so, you know, very basic theory to start. And some of the things we've already talked about, you know, just speed and stall point and a lot of the things you're going to learn, uh, I'm sure the same as is flying a sailplane and also flying an airplane. And so, you know, your, your basic aviation theory, and then they're going to take you out and you're going to learn how to ground handle. What I mean by that is, you know, with a little bit of breeze or even no breeze, you're just going to play with the glider on the ground, you know, when there's very little risk. So you're not flying, you're just learning how to use the A's, which are the, 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 the lines that go to the leading edge versus the brakes and how to steer a glider and how to, 
catch it from collapsing and and handling it when it does collapse. And so you're doing all that stuff on the ground when there's no risk. And it's actually really fun. Um, ground handling is very fun and it's a very critical aspect of our sport, even when you're a professional. So, you know, I still spend a lot of time ground handling and I've been doing this a long, a long time. And so, uh, so yeah, so you go out and ground handle and then you would advance to a really little micro hill uh, if you're in places where there are uh, spots to launch from off a mountain. Uh, you, we could also tow up in, in flatlands like in Australia and stuff. They'll, you'll learn off the back of a car or a motorcycle and you'll just get towed up. Okay. So same as you've seen wow. with hang gliders and same as you guys have, it's just ours, ours would be done from the ground. You're not pulling, you're not towing up with an airplane and releasing that way in the sky, but it's just a payout winch where you're, the car will move forward if there's a lot of wind, you don't even have to move forward and you, you, you go up into the air, uh, you know, hopefully a couple thousand feet and then you cut away and fly back down. And that's how we often get started for big, huge distance flights too. Like in Texas is we'll fly, we'll take off from an airport and get towed up, release. And then that's how we start our flight when there's no hills. So anyway, back to the learning, you'll, you'll do, uh, some very kind of controlled flights. Usually the first flight would be a tandem with an instructor and they'll, they'll just, you know, fly you around the sky for half an hour and you can take over the controls and use the brakes. And so same as you would flying an airplane, you know, with an instructor, and then you'll advance to doing really easy solo flights where you have an instructor in your rate on the radio. And so they're telling you, okay, turn left, shift, you know, weight shift and pull a little bit left break. Okay. Straighten out. You know, they're just, they're basically flying you to the ground on the radio. Um, and then you keep advancing from there. And so there's, there's kind of a syllabus that people follow around the world. There, there are different protocols and systems, depending if you're in France or Switzerland, but they're all pretty similar and you're working towards basically your novice pilot's license. So I think same as with an airplane, you can do it in about two weeks. Um, and, and then when you advance, you know, when you're, when you've completed that course and tap past the tests, which is both written and the actual flying part, you'll take the, you'll, you'll take the practical, I guess that's what it is, the practical exam and the, and the written exam. And when you pass that and the instructor signs off on you here in the States, what you have is what's called a P2. So that's like a novice license. So you're, you're then signed off to fly solo at easy sites at, you know, okay. and, and um, you have very little skills, you know, you're a total newbie and you know, you're, you're very much a novice, but you're then, you know, if you buy the gear and you have the stuff and you go fly P2 sites, you can do it totally on your own without an instructor. And then it just goes up from there. Does that limit you on the wing you can use when you're novice then? No, it doesn't. Uh, it should, but no, you can you can go out and get a crazy hot competition glider and fly it if you want to. Um, wow. The results of that would probably be pretty terrible. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I think most, but I don't think there's any regulation that stops that. And you know, if you have a bad instructor, uh, then they can sell you bad gear and there's a lot of discussion in the sport right now. You know, that's, it's done very differently in Europe. Um, there, but there's a lot of discussion in the sport right now where, you know, our instructors are 
also selling gear. And so they're, they're maybe incentivized by the wrong thing. And maybe those two things should be very separate because that is how a lot of instructors make a lot of money is from selling gear. And so, oh, we'll buy this, you know, buy the next kit, yeah, buy right. another kit, you know, and mm-hmm. our wings start off as what's called ENA. So that's the certification. And so there's a ton of passive safety in an ENA wing. So that would be a wing that everybody learns on. And then it goes up from there, ENB, ENC, END, and then what's called CCC. So that's the competition class gliders. You know, each one of those is a is a huge step up in terms of less passive safety and more performance. And so, you know, each one of those steps is obviously harder to recover a glider that's in a situation. And so, yeah, um, that bites a lot of people getting into gliders that are too advanced for their skill level and it's pretty unfortunate doesn't doesn't certainly doesn't need to be that way but yeah i think i i don't know how that if there's any crossover with that kind of thing with sail plans i would imagine but you know it's the same thing with hang gliders you know the the really high aspect high performance hang gliders are pretty hard to pilot uh, from what i'm told and so you know you need a lot of hours and it's the same in paragliding do you guys have the same division between pure parapilots and powered paramotors. I mean, some glider pilots, they think engines are cheating. <laughs> yeah. So how does that, how's that in the para world? Well, so paramotors are, it's a huge, it's a f- really fast growing aspect of our sport right now, which is, um, depending on how you look at it, pretty exciting. And, you know, I, personally, I find them very loud and pretty obnoxious and I don't really get it, but I can totally see the value of it if you live in a place that doesn't have very good cross-country potential. Um, They're fantastic for photos and videography because when you fly a paramotor, you really want to fly it in in very casual air. You're not usually seeking out strong thermals and big days like we are when we're paragliding because we're trying to, you know, fly cross-country. So... You know, they're flying early mornings and late evenings when the air is really gentle and, and nice. And so it's terrific for photography and videography. But the racing has become a really big deal, you know, where they're kind of kind of like the Red Bull, uh, you know, when they're flying the planes through the pylons, you know, that's, it's a, they have a very similar thing in paramotoring, which looks pretty exciting. And then big distance. There's a lot of records that have been broken lately where people paramotor for distance is that cheating? I, you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's never, it's never really appealed to me because, you know, the fact, you know, what's so incredible about the sport is that we're navigating through the invisible and, you know, we're using forces that are created by the sun and wind and terrain that we can't see. And, you know, that's just awesome. And so I personally don't really get it, but like I said, you know, if you live in Illinois and you don't have a mountain to hop off and, you know, or it's winter and there's no thermals, then, you know, pretty cool way to still get in the sky. So I totally see their usefulness and and why people would, you know, pursue it. And, you know, people do a lot of paramotoring in the Alps. And that to me, I just don't get it. I don't know why you wouldn't just go paragliding. But yeah, like I said, you know, they you can fly down a river at six o'clock in the morning. Well, we can't do that. We're going to land in the river. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so I totally yeah. see. And then, uh, you know, a buddy of mine does a lot of paramotoring and he's an airplane pilot and a paraglider and a speed pilot. He does it all. And, 
you know, he'll take his paramotor out in the desert and do this just crazy, beautiful flights, you know, first thing in the morning with the sun just coming up and spectacular. So I totally get it from that perspective. It's, I don't think it's, uh, it's not kind of a war like snowboarding and skiing was, you know, oh, those guys, I mean, I think we all very much appreciate it. I, it just, you know, I, I did some paramotoring in Namibia to try to get some pictures in the dunes and the Sousa Vle, um, quite a few years back. And it was just a disaster, you know, and I flew, I flew one once up in Alaska and too much wind and it was incredibly scary. So I have a lot of, uh, respect for them for sure. You know, it's, it's heavy. It's hard to get off the ground and it's very, they're very awkward. And, you know, if you're flying over an ocean or a river or, you know, doing this low stuff that you see them do all the time and you have a mechanical failure, you're in deep shit. So, um, you know, I do have a lot of respect for them, but, you know, I think, I think maybe, you know, I understand there's sailplanes now that have a, you know, a motor that you can use in certain situations, you know, to either get off the ground or, you know, make a landing that you wouldn't be normally, normally be able to make. And, you know, they're, they're, they add weight and they, you know, they hurt your glide, but they can be pretty useful in certain situations. And, you know, I think, I think paramotors are the same thing. So back to the pure paragliding, when you guys are thermaling on big cumulus days, how do you deal with cloud suck? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's famous stories of cloud suck that have gone really bad. You know, Eva, who I'm actually getting on the show here pretty soon, you know, you, I'm sure you've heard that story in 2007 world championships, you know, very good pilot. She was down in Australia and it was the practice day and she, and I believe a Korean pilot, I've gotten a little hazy on the exact details, but got sucked up into a big QNIM. Uh, they were trying to go between two clouds that were kind of growing together and, you know, clearly shouldn't have been in the sky at all. It was a huge day and uh, way too unstable. And they both got sucked up and he was killed um, mm-hmm. by lightning, they think. And she passed oh out at somewhere around 25, 26,000 feet and got spit out oh. of the top of the of the cloud above the height of Everest, you know, so over 30,000 feet. They know all this because her instruments kept working and kept track of all this. So she, she was passed out, got spit out of the top of the cloud, completely encased in ice, her wing, herself, everything. I think she got a little bit of frostbite on her cheeks and then came back down. You know, the canopy was open miraculously and came back down and she woke up somewhere, you know, I think she was out for some longish period of time woke up um and piloted the glider to the ground and was basically unhurt uh you know i Mm. don't know about her head so much but physically was pretty pretty unhurt and so you know there are a lot of stories over the decades of really scary cloud suck you know finding a body 40 miles away completely shattered um from the hail and uh so it's it's very much you know um something that pilots in paragliding and hang gliding learn from the from day one you know to be careful about cloud suck and you know to be really careful flying on you know days uh, with a lot of overdevelopment or any overdevelopment especially here in the in the intermountain west where i live where you know a day can change in in 10 minutes uh, pretty violently you know so anywhere you have dry desert conditions um and, and strong air then you know it's the same as 
is you guys. So yeah, I mean, in, how we deal with it is, I would imagine, pretty the same. We will park ourselves under a big cloud if we need the if we need the climb. And as we start to get closer, then you start to look at angles of escape and and uh, you know trying to get on speed bar and trying to start work the start to work the outside of the cloud so you've got a place to go. But you know, cloud flying for us is the same as for you. It's illegal. Um, it's very much frowned against and can be incredibly dangerous and of course massively disorienting if you're in a cloud and pretty spooky so we're actively trying to stay out of clouds and i think especially beginners often get that wrong and uh we'll get into cloud suck and hopefully it goes okay and uh and then you don't do it again Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. You know, I've been flying an awful long time and I still have days, you know, I had a, I had a big triangle here two summers ago where, um, you know, I was doing everything I could to stay out of a, a cloud at, you know, well over our legal limit, you know, which is 18,000 and I couldn't do it. And I got, you know, I, I still went in the cloud and, you know, and luckily came out very quickly afterwards because I had been actively, you know, from 15,000 to 19,000 trying to stay away from this thing. And, and, uh, you know, we don't have the speed you guys do. So, you know, I, I played it too close that day and, uh, you know, should have been, should have given myself more margin. So how do you get out of the cloud? I mean, do you stall the wing? How does that go? No, usually in a proper cloud suck situation, if we stall the wing, we'll still be going up. You know, there's still enough canopy over our heads. It, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't oh, just well. ball up into nothing. You know, it's just the right. initial, the initial stall will, you know, the wing will go behind you. You'll fall down beneath it. You keep your, your if you keep your brakes buried, there's still a lot of glider flopping around up there. And, uh, you know, it's okay. messy and you, so you don't have a lot of control, but if, you know, in a proper cloud suck situation where you've got, you know, way over 10 meters, uh, way over a 10 meter climb, then, you know, you're, you're still going to be going up and pretty violently. And so to the fastest way we have to come down is a deep spiral and so a really tucked in spiral okay. it's called a spiral dive um, you can also do a spiral dive with your outside wing in what's called a big ear you know so you can kind of collapse your outside wing and and then tuck into a spiral and that'll give you less g-force and so tandem pilots do that a lot so they don't make their passengers sick when they're just trying to come down they're not obviously flying in conditions like that where they're yeah. worrying about cloud suck but just you know when they're just trying to get somebody down to the ground that's not feeling very good right so that's our best way we can do uh uh, that big ears when I was telling you about where you kind of collapse the outside of your wing. So only the interior wing is flying and then use a lot of speed bar. So, you know, you're, you're trying to destroy your, your angle of, or you're trying to increase your angle of attack and destroy your glide. Um, but yeah, you get pretty limited. You can do what's called a beast beeline stall where you're stalling the inside of the wing. Um, you know, your a lines are attached to the leading edge and then your B's, and then if it's a lower end glider, you've got C's and then your brakes. Um, and you can, you can stall the inside of the wing. That's not used very much anymore on the wings we have these days, which are, you know, more, it's called a pyramidal shape. And like I said, the shark nose, it just doesn't, it doesn't deal with the beeline nearly as well. And it's not very aggressive. And so 
the you need an aggressive way to come down when you're dealing with a lot of when you're dealing with a really strong thermal and so you know the best way is to avoid it in the first place and yeah. if you're but if you're you know if you've if you've cut the line too close and you're in it then you know if you've got the terrain below you i mean if you've got open terrain below you and you're not going to spiral right into the mountain then a spiral is really your best option if you're in the cloud and you don't know where the terrain is below you and you know obviously you don't want to spiral into the mountain then the best way is just to take a a, a safe heading that you before you went in the cloud, you identified, okay, well, there's no cloud over there, head in that direction. So you're yeah. just looking at your compass because you're totally disoriented. You know, wow. it often feels like the gliders below your feet in those situations. Oh, <laughs> um, and it's really spooky. And, uh, and so you would just take a course heading and use maximum speed bar, you know, just go, fly as fast as you possibly can and, and try to stay on that heading, which can be really challenging. Wow. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty hard. You feel, you often really feel like you're making a turn when you aren't or vice versa. It's, it's, uh, you know, we don't have all those instruments that can help us out with that. So, um, hopefully you've got a compass. A lot of pilots don't fly with a compass. And so then you're relying on your instruments and with the delay of an instrument, um, you know, you often don't know you're off course until a few seconds too late. And then you're constantly trying to course correct for that. And doing that in a cloud is, is, uh, pretty difficult. Gavin, that sounds kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. I mean, it, I, I think when you first, when you first start getting into it, um, you know, and you get, you start touching little sides of wispiness and, you know, right. dancing with the clouds a little bit. It's pretty exciting, you know, when you're going in and out. And as long as yeah. you can see the terrain, it's, it's fine. Um, but as soon as you lose the terrain and you're actually in it, um, and I've been in proper cloud suck. I got one, uh, I got cloud sucked up in Alaska on that traverse, oh, wow. uh, where I, I was really low and I really needed more height to make this valley crossing. So I stuffed myself in a cloud on purpose, knowing that there was no, I didn't have to worry about traffic. I'm in Alaska. I don't have to worry <laughs> yeah. about other planes or anybody else, you know, it was just me, but I flew in this cloud for 20 minutes. And oh, wow. when you look back, you know, we've got, I don't know if you guys use Avery, but you know, you can take your IGC file and load it into this software. It's an app online that's terrific. And then you can see your flight and speed it up and slow it down. And, and I was just wish I was just my, I was the opposite of flying one direction. I was just all over the place, you know, trying to use yeah. my instruments. My, I was using my instrument, my inReach on the compass page and the, I had it set. So, you know, in power saving mode, so it would only stay up for 20 seconds and I'm, I'm totally frozen. I'm completely encased in ice. And oh, so I'm trying, man. I'm taking off my gloves and go, okay, stay on the compass. And then I'd get back my gloves on and then the compass would, you know, oh. and the screen would die again and ah, oh, shit. And I knew I was really close to the terrain as well. And so, you know, I didn't want to be going right because that was right in the Denali and I, I wanted to stay out to the left towards the flats. But I, you know, when you look at the Avery, I just looked like a drunken sailor. I was all over the place. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was pretty amusing, you know, after the fact. But at the time it was, I was incredibly disoriented. And, and like I said, when you're flying a paraglider in, in a cloud, it's so disorienting that you, what often, not often, but what has happened to pilots is they think they're flying straight and what they're actually doing is basically spiraling into the ground. Oh my goodness. Um, you, wow. you, you just totally lose, when you lose your horizon, you have no, it, the glider feels 
like a foreign alien and um, you just really lose your sense of direction. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, Go to SoaringAcademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. Now, you've kind of told us about some flights, but do you have one particular flight that really stands out, good or bad or otherwise? Oh, man. I have so many. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've i talked about this one before, but my I broke a record here um, in 2013. I believe it just it just got broken by the guy in Texas the one flight I was telling you about so uh it was back in 2013 and the day before it actually been a personal best I'd, I'd gone for me really far it was three and it was just shy of the foot launch record it was 300 and uh 19k and I think the record at that time was three. 25 or something it was it was it was 204 miles and and wow. i landed at you know 202 miles and so i was just shy the day before and you know, this was here in idaho and it was a day we, i flew off mount baldy which is our big ski area and flew really deep into montana and it was a big week i had three flights and they were all you know over 300k and uh and so I, I got home that night actually to a friend's house who lives down valley from me at four something o'clock in the morning and got a couple hours sleep. And he was actually taking me home the next morning and that, or that morning. And I was going to bed. I was exhausted. And two of my friends were up on the top of Mount Baldy getting ready to launch and, uh, and called me and said, Hey, I, we think today's even better. You should come up here. And, Oh man, I don't know. I'm tired. But I, anyway, my buddy had a <laughs> bottle of oxygen I could borrow cause mine was empty from the day before. And I uh, went and got a sandwich and, and got on the gondola and went to the top. And they had already flown. They launched and got kind of unlucky. And they, were, they got clouded out. It was, a, it was a big day. It was, there was a lot of overdevelopment that day. I, I, didn't, I hadn't even looked at the forecast, but you know, I, I learned as I got into the air. It was, you know, there was a lot of verga. It was a big day to be flying in the mountains, kind of a sketchy day. And uh, anyway, started, I, so I, I launched quite a bit late and uh, got into the air and Within the first hour, I realized, wow, I'm on an incredible pace here because it was really windy. And like I said early, wind is not our, not that safe for us. But there was a lot of wind, and the most of the wind was up high. And so if I could stay high and out of the terrain, then it was relatively safe. Um, twice on the flight, I got really low. Once in the Lemhi's, so our our mountain ranges here are we're in the, what's called the Wood River Valley. And then we, as we're heading east into Montana, we, we cross three main, well, four actually big mountain ranges, uh, heading into Montana. We go over ours here and then we go over the big lost and then the Lemhi's and then the Beaverheads, which is the continental divide. And as I was going into the Lemhi's, you know, before, when I left the big lost uh, and I was gliding towards the Lemhi's, it's a big Valley crossing. It's about 20 miles and which is a big one for us. Not so big for you guys, but it was, you know, you got to stay high doing that. Um, 
you know, I was hitting 110, 120 kilometers an hour, um, you know, oh, with on a glider that's got a trim speed of 45, that's a lot of wind. <laughs> and, uh, it was like, man, but it was smooth and beautiful. But as I got into the limb highs, I started getting pretty low and, uh, I turned into the wind hoping I could soar the windward side, which was also the sunny side and in, in the morning and just immediately got blown over the back. And so, uh, you know, it was ripping mm. on the ground as well, well over 50 K an hour. So well above oh, my wow. trim speed. So mm. incredibly sketchy, very dangerous situation that, you know, a lot of it was ignorance back then. I was still, you know, for big air and big distance, I was pretty new to that game. And so I would be the, I was terrified then, but now I would be really terrified. And I'd like to think I would never put myself in that situation. It was way beyond safe. Um, anyway, got blown over the back and it was just, we call it SIV situations on vol, which we've practiced for over the water and kind of a controlled setting, you know, so forcing our glider to have problems and then correcting them, uh, in a safe where you got an instructor on the radio and you've got reserves and you can just land in the water and get picked up. Well, this was yeah. that, but in a totally uncontrolled situation. So I was just, I was completely in the rotor of big mountains, very, very treed, um, on the backside and, uh, just hanging on, just doing everything I could to just keep my glider over my head and then got to kind of a ridge. I was able to, you know, I lost a ton of altitude, got kind of on a ridge that was in the rotor, but also on the windward side. So it was on the backside of the limb highs, but it was just a canyon down there. And I was just, you know, skimming the tree tops. That might, when you look at my IGC file, I was less than 15 meters off the ground for a big chunk of this. And so, but it was so windy that I couldn't figure out how to land. You know, it was, there was, it was all treed and there was a couple little pockets of places where I felt like I could maybe put it down, but I would have been behind trees and it was just mm. terrifying, really, really scary. And, uh, and so I was still just kind of hanging on, trying to figure out how to put it in and not get blown over the back of this mountain, um, safely. And an Eagle came out of a tree and just skied out, just poof, you know, and I went to where he was or had just been, and got a ripper thermal, you know, it was like a 12 meter climb and, uh, lost one side of my wing, but that didn't matter because the, the thermal was so strong. And I, I went to 16,000 feet in what felt like seconds. Um, it was just, wow. And, uh, <laughs> really, really strong conditions. Like I said, it was, it was pretty dynamic that day. And, uh, and anyway, got back up to cloud base and kept going. Later on in the flight, just past Butte, Montana. So I'm I'm way in now. I'm I'm, yeah, I'm about the same distance I'd been the day before, but on a total, totally different route, kind of heading up towards Helena, Montana. I actually didn't really know where I was, and uh, and I, again the sky. I'd been running from this Virga line all day. You know, this big Virga line behind me. It it, it just been I'd been kind of keeping pace with it all day, and it started just out in front had been beautiful all day. Just, just cloud hopping. We call it dolphin flying when the clouds are just, you're just totally in sync with the thermals. You know, the, I'd, I'd leave a climb and, it, and, and I'd start going down and then the next climb would appear before me and make a cloud and I'd be perfect position. And so, you know, nice. I was, I think my, I think my average speed that day was 54 K an hour, which is the kind of speeds you see flying the flatlands of Brazil or Texas, you know, that's really, really fast for us. Wow. That means you're not spending a lot of time climbing and you're getting blown downwind. And again, just 
totally unreasonable in a mountain environment. It was sketchy, but nice. anyway, it was also beautiful and at times just wicked. And uh, anyway, I got past Butte and the whole sky just completely grayed out. This Virga that had been chasing me finally caught up to me and it grayed out. And I, I went from almost 18,000 to the deck and I was ridge soaring. Basically, I just got in front of this cliff and I was just, because it was still very windy on the ground as well. And I was just basically ridge soaring and uh, it was really dark. And I'm looking at my distance going, God, I'm 10K away from the record. It's right there. And, and, and I, oh, kind of, man. I started thinking like, man, if I could just, if I could just leave this cliff edge and fly downwind down there, there was a little bit, I had a little bit of terrain in this valley off to my left. And I thought, God, if maybe I could make that 10K if I just wanged it into the valley and flew downwind. And right when I started thinking, okay, I'm going to try that, um, a little pocket of sun came out. And it was, like I said, it was so unstable that day that just poof, I caught a little bit of a, uh, a climb and was able to hang, hang with it. Got back up to cloud base in no time. And it was basically that last glide was what killed me was there's a Canyon Ferry Lake was out in front of me and I could see that this storm was going to catch me. I wasn't going to be able to keep outrunning it. And so, uh, I flew another 70 K or so on that one glide, which is pretty remarkable. Awesome. And then, uh, landed at the lake at a little campground, uh, and it was 387 K. So it was 240 miles. So it was a pretty good, you know, I, I beat the record by a pretty fair distance and, uh, Sweet. I was just over the moon and, you know, landed safe. And my buddy who had flown that morning and said, Hey, I think today's going to be even better. He'd been chasing me all day, driving a hundred miles an hour. And he, he showed up two hours later. So, I mean, I, I totally smoked my buddy on the ground who was driving really fast. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty special. I think it was a 16 hour drive back oh, and the wow. flight there was just over seven hours. So it wasn't even that much time. I mean, you know, in a good summer day, we often fly 10, 11 hours, but that was just, you know, a lot of wind and very special. And, you know, that record held for eight years. And so it was, that was, that was pretty fun. I don't, I would never want to repeat it, anything close to that, but, you know, I was, I was happy to have survived it. And, you know, it was a, it was a very special line that I've never flown since. You know, that's the, the cool thing about free fly is every single flight's totally different, you know, and, and yeah, I've never flown that line since. Now we were talking earlier, you said you're getting ready to do a hike and fly in Dubai, right? Yeah, I was, I just pulled the pin on that yesterday. So there's a big hike and fly race, uh, mostly X Alps athletes in Dubai that I was going to leave for here in a week on the 18th. Um, and it's, I think four or five days of racing. So you race one day and you have a day off. I think the first day we do two laps on this seven star hotel, this real fancy hotel and wow. lob off the top and fly down to the beach and then run back up the, it's a huge hotel. It's a very fancy, the hotel with the hole in the middle of it. You've probably all seen pictures of it. It's crazy. But uh, yeah, I'm actually building a house right now and all the schedule just got shifted around and we're pouring the foundation next week. And we were going to be doing that in December. So everything, anyway, I, I can't attend, unfortunately. So I've just canceled that yesterday, but uh, I'll be watching it online for sure. It looks like a lot of fun. I didn't know there were mountains in Dubai, but apparently there are. <laughs> yeah. I, I do want you to briefly mention, I mean, I could talk about this for hours, but when I was checking out paragliding uh, years back, I'd actually run into the Alps X. Now you've competed in that, right? what, four times? Is that correct? Yeah, this was my fourth. Yeah, my first, it's it's a race that happens every two years and it's a basically a 12-day 
hike and fly race across the Alps and forever until this year it started in Salzburg, which is near Red Bull headquarters and ended in Monaco on the, on the sea in the Mediterranean. And so you basically stay with the spine of the Alps and, and then every edition they add, they've always added distance, made it harder. And there's always iconic waypoints along the way, like Mont Blanc and Monte Rosa and the Matterhorn, places like that. And that you either have to hit on the ground or in the air yeah, and it's it's vicious. They call it the hardest adventure race on earth. It's a mind-blowing amount of uh, endurance and groundwork, you know, so either hiking or running and then flying. So it's a combination of, you know, your own your own personal transport. You had to carry your gear the whole way. Uh, you have a support team that can help water you and feed you and strategize and give you weather reports and all that kind of thing. And so it's very intense for your team as well, because there's very little sleep and you're, yeah, you're basically just going hard for 12 days trying to get there. I think it has an 11% finish rate. So oh, wow, uh, 11%. very few people in the history of the race have made it. Um, I made it in 2015, I haven't made it since, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this was my fourth one was, was this summer in 2021. I think five people made it this year. So the, it's usually 32 people start whoever's in last place every 48 hours gets eliminated. Wow. So there's, and then there's usually another, you know, 20% get eliminated just because of injuries or overuse injuries, whether that be blisters or something broken or, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty hardcore. Yeah, what I saw on YouTube, I'm just, of course, getting a snapshot of it, but it looks super extreme, and you have to, I'm sure, train pretty intensely before you even think about competing. Yeah, and that's actually why I've decided to not do another one. I'm I'm bordering on 50. You know, some of the guys in the race, if you added them up, they don't they don't, <laughs> the two of them together don't add up to 50. So, you know, I'm definitely the older guy there. Although there was a Japanese guy who's been a, done a bunch of them. He did it in 2009, Ogi, who's, who was 61 this year and he put on a hell of a race. So, oh, wow. you know, it's, it's uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'm quitting too early, but yeah, the training is, uh, <laughs> the training is intense. It's, it's something that is in some ways, the flying aspect of it is a lifetime, uh, which I got into later than a lot of the guys that are that are, um, you know, big contenders in the race, but the, the physical aspect, you know, they say you can either, you know, pay during the race or you pay in the training. And, you know, I always decided to take it as the, from the tra- training side. Cause if you, if you train really hard, uh, the race is, is annihilating, but you can enjoy it and it doesn't just rip you apart and you feel strong at the end. And, but it, it requires a pretty solid year of, training really hard uh, unbelievable amount of hours and dedication and diet and you know everything that goes into it i do a ton of strength training i spend a lot of time in the gym but also just you know you've got to get your body uh pretty comfortable with doing a lot of miles on concrete you know you end up you end up doing a lot of walking on roads and often very busy roads and so most of the time you're just going up you know you're just going up a mountain to get to a launch and flying but you know, you in the mornings and the evenings, and if you bomb out in the middle of the day, you've got to spend some time on the concrete as well, which is pretty hard on joints. And it's, it's especially hard because you're carrying your gear the whole way. Um, you know, it's not super heavy. It's about 20 pounds, but that adds up to metric tons over the course of the race. So 
you know, you got to spend a lot of time strength training and just preparing just for the pack, just, you know, your core strength and your back and your, your shoulders and, and then just the overuse stuff, you know, blisters are what takes out most people. And you can just imagine, especially if it's hot or if it's wet or there's a lot of rain, you know, you've got to keep your feet dry, got to keep swapping socks and shoes. And there's a lot that goes into it, you know, cause it's, it's 12 days. It's 12 days of going really, really, really hard. That is insane. You know, the only thing I can even try to compare it to, I go run, right? So I'm running an hour, but you guys, I mean, that's, you guys are out there literally day and night. It's not like you can go to the hotel, right? And, and rest up and go the next day. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty intense. You know, you're in the old days, you were allowed to go 24 hours a day. You didn't have to stop ever, you know, except you're just exhausted. Uh, the new rules, which they implemented, about a decade ago is, you know, we, we have, you're, you're not allowed to move between 1030 at night and five o'clock in the morning. So, you know, that's not a lot of rest, uh, 17 and a half hours every day where you're, you know, you have to go really hard. The, the pace of the race is unbelievable these days. You know, everybody in it is super fit and really good pilots, you know, and, uh, and they have amazing teams. You know, so the, the tech has gotten super advanced and the speed of the teams is, is, absolutely remarkable and so you're and then one night in the race you can pull what's called a night pass and go all night um and so you know we're all dealing with pretty serious sleep deprivation especially as the race starts getting into day eight day nine day ten um and you're flying a paraglider which is pretty dangerous so yeah it's a it's a pretty vicious combination that's uh very addictive really fun and it's a it's an amazing place to be for 12 days and i don't i, I mean you know Physically, where you are, what you're seeing, what you're doing is amazing, but also just where you are in your brain is a, is a, it's pretty special. Wow, takes a, a a whole a whole different kind of person to do all that. So so wow, that's awesome. Good for you. It's been a fun journey. Oh, I can't imagine. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America. And they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. We always give pilots a chance to give a shout out. So this is your shot to give a shout out to anyone you'd like to who's helped you along your way and your soaring journey. Gosh, there's so many. Well, first would be my wife and my daughter. Uh, they are really good about allowing me to pursue this passion. You know, there's been no breaks on my life or uh, handrails put on on the things I do because this is what I've always done. And so uh, shout out to them for sure. Maddie and Fallon, you guys are awesome. My ex-Alps team, uh, they are, a couple of them have been with me since the beginning. My trainer, Ben Abruzzo and uh, and Keith and Revis. And this year we, hit, we were joined by a guy named Ben Horton who did all the media for us and just incredibly solid group of dudes. And love you guys. You guys are amazing. And then of course, I just I owe thanks to all my mentors, all the people who have you know been there for me in this sport and and uh, 
given so much good advice over the years on the folks I fly with on a regular basis. And then, of course, my sponsors, uh, Niviac, Cortel, Patagonia, Saleva, Vespa. It used to be Garmin. I lost those guys this year, which was a bummer, but I still love you guys. Um, yeah, they, they've all been very integral in uh, allowing me to pursue this. And this year, Smart Wool was an amazing addition. Kept my feet blister-free, so thanks to you guys for making awesome socks. Gavin, you know how I got to, to know you? is your podcast that I've been listening to for a few years. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, the cloud-based ma'am. This is, let's see, our seventh year, I think. We just posted our 158th show, normal show, and we also do some bonus shows. But it's basically, a, a like yours, uh, a podcast dedicated to free flight. And it there, we have more paragliders than, than others, but we try to, you know, we'll do if you if you fly it we'll do it so uh sailplanes balloons wingsuiting base jumping uh hang gliding paragliding so the theme of it is i basically talk to the best pilots in the world and try to distill and spread that knowledge so how to stay safe and how to fly far and but we also we do shows on acrobatics you know there's basically two disciplines in our sport acrobatics and cross country and so yeah, I just have these fireside chats chats with great people and and try to bring it to people who are interested in free flight. Uh, I just released my first, just published my first book, uh, Advanced Paragliding, that's all based on the talks of the first 100 shows. So nice. at some point, I think we'll, when we get to 200, we'll have to do another one based on those, but it, it was kind of a the best of the best of those first hundred shows was was put into a book that was published by Cross Country Magazine, who I write a regular column for, and all good friends of mine over in England, and so yeah, the it was it started on a complete whim in the beginning. The sound was terrible, and we were very, you know, there was no schedule, and I would just get around to it every once in a while, and I found that. You know, the people who listen just said, oh, my God, I've been aching for this. You know, we can't get this kind of information, a deep dive with, you know, great pilots in a magazine or a book or it just doesn't exist. And so, yeah, just we kind of started on a whim and it's grown into a pretty cool animal. And I love doing it. But I, uh, that's awesome. thanks for listening and, and thanks for having me on your show. It's a real honor. Yeah, thanks for bringing our two sports together. This is pretty awesome. Yeah, I think there needs to be more cross-pollination there. I, I think that I'm sure we know some things that, that soaring pilots, you know, haven't been able to tap into and vice versa, I know is big. You know, that I know that you're the way soaring pilots look at the weather and the sky and the forecast and just because of their machinery, what they're able to do and their glide difference is um, you know, and speeds is massive and it's, you know, we, we can't go fly and wave. We, we actually can, uh, you know, one of the, one of my buddies who flew in the 2015 X Alps with me was very convinced he was flying and wave one of the days, a very rowdy, big day. Um, so we can, but not very safely, whereas you guys seek it out. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's pretty exciting. And, you know, the, like I said, in the beginning, the principles are the same. So I'd love to, uh, I'd love to explore it more. Well, hopefully we'll be chatting more in the future. Love to. Thanks, Chuck. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Story Master here. Today we're going to talk about 
how new technologies are making cloud flying a lot easier and what to do in order to use them in a safe way. Once restricted to commercial or military aircraft, Attitude and Heading Reference Systems or AHARs are now easily available for gliders. Even electronic varials have them as one functionality. Even though these systems are more than welcome to soaring, they cannot be seen as a game changer in terms of cloud flying with sailplanes. In fact, a pilot trained to fly into clouds needs to be able to control the sailplane by using a simple turn and slip indicator, the airspeed indicator, a compass, GPS, and altimeter. The AHARS is a plus, and a great plus, by the way. But not the only thing to be relied upon. If it fails in the middle of the cloud, what would you do? There are also inherent risks related to cloud flying. Sailplanes are not equipped with heated pitots or ice-protected surfaces, so both the airspeed indicator or the altimeter can eventually ice up. The sailplane performance and stability can be degraded due to icing as well, not to mention the possibility of instrument failure during IMC. So the pilot must closely monitor the instrument's coherence and sailplane response looking for any sign of these problems, so one can act as fast as possible and get out from the cloud in a controlled way. Things are much more complicated than just enabling the AHARS function and going into cloud. From the piloting perspective, cloud flying requires full reliance on the instruments and total disregard for body sensations and external visual cues, as they might lead to pilot disorientation. When cloud flying, pitch is indirectly controlled via speed control with small inputs to maintain speeds within a predetermined range. And since sailplanes are spirally unstable in row, this means that if left alone, the sailplane will slowly bank and enter in a high-speed spiral dive. Quickly recognizing this condition by looking at the instruments is the key and not taking any body sensation into account. You also need to monitor your position via GPS, mainly if you fly near airspace borders or over mountainous regions, and you always need to have a plan for any circumstance. Checking the sailplane flight manual is also important. There you will find whether cloud flying is authorized by the manufacturer or not, the minimum instrumentation required and specifications, flight limitations and any other manufacturer recommendations. The flight instruments themselves also require a double check by the pilot. Not every turn and slip indicator can be used in a sailplane. They need to be calibrated to the flight speeds we fly in sailplanes. Also, a good understanding about the functioning of this instrument is required. Turning slips can show unreliable indications depending on the G loading and other factors. The first thing any pilot willing to fly into clouds must do is to look for a cloud flying course, which will provide you with both theoretical and practical training. And also check the local regulations because they can vary enormously from country to country and it's even forbidden in some of them. So having the endorsement and being fully qualified for cloud flying does not mean that you'll be able to do it everywhere. 
If you don't have this kind of training, simply do not enter in clouds. If you are near the cloud base and realize that you will enter in a cloud, simply open spoilers and get back to visual flight conditions. If you inadvertently do get inside the cloud, leveled wings, centralize commands, open full spoilers and maintain this until getting out from the cloud. Flying inside the so-called white room is a different game, and in order to do it safely, a number of things and training must be done before attempting it. See you in the next episode, and don't forget to follow me on Instagram, at SurreyMaster, or check my website, SurreyMaster.com. Thank you, Sergio, for another great informative Soaring Master segment, and a big thank you to our guest pilot, Gavin McClurg. Don't forget to check out his YouTube channel and his Instagram you can find some links there in the show notes. You're going to see some pics and videos of a lot of his adventures he shared with us today. If you have a soaring adventure and you want to share with us, you can go to our website and record a short story on our recording tool. It's super simple. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.